0: to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, although today it's just Monica, and our very fun and exciting guest, Ashley Winstead, who is the author of The Boyfriend Candidate. Now, Ashley is an academic-turned-novelist with a Ph.D. in Contemporary American Literature. She lives in Houston with her husband, two cats, and beloved Wine Fridge, which I'd love to hear all about, and she's also the author of the fierce and funny rom-com Fool Me Once, which was named an Amazon Best Book of 2022, and the thrillers In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, and The Last Housewife. She is a graduate of Vanderbilt University, and her PhD is from Southern Methodist University. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Ashley. Hi. Thanks.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So part of um part of why I was looking forward to doing to interviewing you today is because the boyfriend candidate is set in Austin and I am in Austin right now. So <laughs>
1: Hello from Houston. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm actually in Pflugerville, but that's close enough. And it's been it was really fun to try and figure out where you are writing about because sometimes you use the real names of places and sometimes yeah. I think you didn't. And sometimes um I cheat in the <laughs> event <Yeah>. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um my when I'm here, which is about twenty five, thirty percent of the time, I my condo is at Barton Place, which awesome. is on Barton Springs Road. Oh, it- and your heroine of the boyfriend candidate works at Barton Springs Elementary.
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. Well, you can tell me everything I did and didn't get accurately. Well, I'm
0: not a native, so I don't, I don't know, but I did want to ask, have you lived in Austin? Um, no, so
1: I've lived in Houston for seven years, um, now, which kind of blows my mind, because I grew up a Navy brat, so it was like two years everywhere. Uh. It's the longest I've lived anywhere. And so I've just traveled to Austin a lot. Um, and the reason I chose Austin as opposed to Houston or Dallas, where I lived for six years getting my degree, um, is because it is this bl- bright blue, politically speaking, yeah. um, city in the middle of a really red state here in Texas and not that that Houston and Dallas themselves aren't don't vote blue because they tend to Um, urban places do but just that Austin has this reputation right for being just like very liberal very progressive very weird which all things to celebrate and so I wanted I really wanted to play on that dichotomy so I I Did a lot of trips and visits, including out to Fredericksburg, wine country. Yes, I've been there. That was like very fun. (laughs) I was like, "Let's go!" It's research. (laughs) Um, Of course, of course it is. Um, and like so, I did a lot of that, and then grilled all of my friends who went to University of Texas in in Austin, and you know, was like, "Okay, where would?" People hang out if they were going to where would people hold a rally or a protest on campus or, um, you know, like where would people where's the like cool place to get a haircut? What street would that be? <laughs> and then a lot of Google Maps. So with all those powers combined, um, hopefully it's like a pretty, pretty um, authentic little. Yeah, slice.
0: I think so. I think so. So, you know, you start out the opening scene. Um, your your heroine is. Um, is uh trying to pick up a guy basically yep and <laughs> and she's um at the fleur-de-lis hotel bar but i'm not familiar with that so is that a made-up that, place that is a made-up okay, place yes. so yes. i put it at the driscoll bar i love <laughs> it yep <laughs> that's where i, pictured I love that it, was at the driscoll. you know
1: it's so funny <laughs> i um was fortunate enough to be interviewed for the galveston post Um, and the report about the boyfriend candidate and the reporter asked if we could meet at Hotel Zaza bar because she pictured the Florida Lee as the Hotel Zaza bar. So (laughs) like, I want to be in the vibes and I loved that. So yes, any like swanky kind of meat market-esque vibes where you're like well-heeled young professionals would.
0: I only, I only went to the Driscoll bar once and, um, what I remember was this group of um, a large group of young, well-dressed, very preppy-looking, mostly blonde, and I'm blonde, so I'm you know I can say that. <laughs>
1: like um, no shade people. to blonde,
0: yeah, no shade to blonde. People standing in this huge group and blocking everybody else's movement around the place. And being completely oblivious to the to the fact that they were actually being rude, so that's yeah. what <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, that yes. is the vibe. That's yeah. perfectly the vibe. And yeah.
1: so, yeah, Alexis is like going to try her luck at this sort of place. Yeah. Pretty sure I've been to the Driscoll once myself.
0: Yeah, it's um, very cool. It's, it's a, very cool. Yeah, it's a very cool building. It's very old. It's on Sixth Street, I think. I was going to
1: say this is the yeah. haunted
0: right this is the haunted so, one the supposedly yes. haunted yeah. one yes i have yes, I, I have did. eaten at the at the um diner there the restaurant once or twice and then i did i did go to the bar once and i've actually thought it would be cool to stay there too it it's it's very elegant cool. old style <laughs> ghosts. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely try, <laughs> try my luck That's so thriller writer
1: and me coming out <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah so why you you published two thrillers quite recently 21 and 22. And then you switched to romantic comedy. Tell me about that journey.
1: Oh, um, it's yeah. All my books are quite recently. I, sometimes I have to remind myself that, um, cause it feels like I've been publishing for a really long time, um, (laughs) but it has only been for two years. Um, and I, this is gonna i hope this doesn't sound obnoxious to say, but I never really um especially really early in my career um which was when I started with romantic comedies and thrillers um set out to write a particular genre of book so i when I was writing the my debut in my dreams I hold a knife, which is a thriller um and um you know, I, I started writing it because I needed somewhere to channel a lot of um, anxiety and depression and dark feelings and jealousy and, you know, feeling toxic perfectionism. And, you know, before I knew it, I was like writing in a way that I was just pouring my heart out on the page, felt very cathartic. Um, There was a lot of backstabbing and mean people being really mean and cruel to each other. But again, this was just like me kind of putting all a lot of ugliness that was inside of me at that moment in time out on the page. Um, And then I kind of like a quarter way through, I was like, yeah, this is like murder. This is a murder mystery thriller. Okay, (laughs) now I see what I'm doing here. So I kind of went back to the beginning and like made sure that it was doing that from the start and then finished it up. And the same thing really with Fool Me Once, which is, um, my, was my debut romantic comedy. It was in the middle of the pandemic and in my dreams hadn't come out yet. So I was sitting with a lot of like pre-publication anxiety about how that was going to be received and if anyone in the world would even read it. Um, and it was again like the middle of lockdown. Um, and I needed to live mentally in a happy place with a guaranteed, um, happy ending, a a place where like the tone was comedic and light and sunshiny. So I started writing this book about, you know, this kind of chaotic woman and like her love story. And I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure I'm writing a romantic comedy. Um, This is going to be news (laughs) to my agent and hopefully, you know, she doesn't like throw me out or kick me off her list or something for being so chaotic with, My writing choices. Um, Yeah, but it worked. And it was just like those books were what I needed at the time for myself. And then they, because they sold, they kind of set the path for my writing career now going forward. Um, That you go
0: back and forth from one to the other. Exactly. Yeah. Is it harder to sort of build an audience that way than if you stuck with just one type?
1: Um. Yes. I, it's funny because like that was a qu- big question mark for me and my agent um, when we were out there selling, trying to sell. Fool me once. We were like, "Is this the best career decision? You know, is this gonna be split my audience, make people confused about my brand?" And we kind of decided to just like steal our spines and f- see what happened. And even more than that, when it came time to decide whether or not I would use a pseudonym, a, a pen name for their romance, yeah. um, we really, really thought about it. And at first, I was—I was, I was going to just like ha- be two different people. Um, so because of the worry that I would confuse readers with my my diff- very different veins of writing, and eventually we decided that more and more people are doing the thing of the writing across the genres thing. You know, I can think of a bunch of, of writers off the bat, um, off the top of my head, like Jesse Q. Satanto R. F. of Kwang, like just a lot of um, obviously like writers, like Nora Roberts have done it for a very long time, very successfully, but there seems to be a little more fluidity um, these days. And like, It's more acceptable. And so we decided that also the readership, my readership who read my thrillers um, might be mood readers like I am and kind of voracious readers like I am and be willing to jump across. And so that is what we've seen for the most part, is that there's a big appetite across genres. But at the same time, my thrillers remain... Way more popular than my romances, is, um, at least so far. So,
0: well, that yeah. might possibly be gender related. Fact that, oh, that that's interesting. Yeah. So, women will definitely read thrillers. I'm a big thriller reader myself. Yeah. Men, of course, will read thrillers. Yep. But they may not be as apt to come across and read the romantic comedy. Or True. if they do, they're going to hide it. Yeah. (laughs) Come out into the light, male readers. Yeah, I want
1: to know you. Yeah, no, that's a really great point that I actually hadn't considered, um, that there might just be like a wider audience for thrillers. I always thought because romances are like the number one, you know, money making genre, and like, it's such a huge industry that, you know... There would be just like a huge readership, but yeah, yeah, that's a really I mean point.
0: there is in a sense, but it is pretty i think gendered, and yeah. so you have a wider potential audience maybe with with the thrillers, yeah,
1: I can see that yeah. I have chalked it up to the fact that I write very similar characters in my thrillers and my um my romances, and that is to say very flawed, very complicated women, um, who are, you know, either kind of like going down murderous <laughs> dark paths or like romantic, uh, cathartic paths. But the, the women tend to be very, very similar. Cause I just, I love an unlikable slash, uh, I should probably eradicate that word from my dictionary, <laughs> but I love a com- complicated woman who isn't perfect. And that really works. People buy in, they're all about it with my thrillers. And it definitely ru- seems to rub people, some, some readers, the wrong way in my romances. And so I've kind of chalked it up to like the current trend in romance heroines being a little bit more um, sweet sweethearts. You know, we kind of like want to see sweethearts who deserve good things to get those good things. And I get that.
0: Um, well, so just I got, out I have, counting the I mean, Alexa Stone is a sweetheart. Yeah. She's, you know. Um, She's maybe a little messed up, but a little, but she certainly, her heart is definitely in the right place. <laughs> she is. She was, she was my first attempt after Fool Me
1: Once and Lee, her chaotic um, self Um, and, and hearing from readers like, you know, huh. Don't know if like how I feel about that. That was kind of like the boyfriend candidate is me kind of taking a step back and doing something different with Alexis and kind of maybe like exploring more of the sweetheart character to see ah, how it landed okay um and it does seem to be landing better so for me
0: once main who was who was the main character there
1: Lee Stone who is Alexis's Alexis. older
0: sister. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: So we've got our two our two my two rom-coms follow two sisters. The older one is book 1 and the younger is book 2.
0: I I did not realize that. Yeah. So th- this definitely works as standalone. As oh, a standalone yes. book for sure cuz that I, was important yeah, to me yeah, to make sure. Yeah. But now I can see oh yeah, so you've got all these characters in the the boyfriend, the sister's boyfriend. I could, see, yeah, there's a whole backstory there. <laughs> yeah. Lee and Ben are book one. Okay. Um,
1: okay. Yeah. So it's really fun. This is actually boyfriend candidate is my first time writing in the same universe. Otherwise I just do complete standalones. Mm. Um, and so this was really fun to bring characters back. Um, and like, Hide a lot of Easter eggs for people who had read Fool Me once, like kind of inside jokes that hopefully work on their own, but have like a complete other layer if you read book one.
0: Wow. You're listening to <laughs> writer's voices and our guest today is Ashley Winstead, author of The Boyfriend Candidate. Now we talked about the fact this is set in Austin, Texas, and of course one of the main reasons that it's set there is because it has this huge political, um, venue as well. And um, a political environment all around the book, the boyfriend candidate is not only a candidate for a boyfriend, but he's a candidate for governor of Texas. And Alexis's older sister Lee is a state representative in Texas. And Austin, of course, is the capital city of Texas. So if you're going to write about Texas politics, if you're going to set your character's lives in the midst of Texas politics, you kind of have to be in Austin. Why did you want to do that? It seems like kind of an unusual choice for a romantic comedy.
1: It is an unusual choice. Um, And I've discovered that the quickest way to get someone to, like, back out of her room (laughs) is (laughs) to say... Uh yeah I've written a, like a romantic comedy. Oh cool. And it's set in the world of politics and then that's when the ex, you know, the exit starts. Um because uh you know politics is rightfully seen as a very divisive sort of um it field, industry, uh, thing in in American lives whereas love is, you know, romance is coming together. So they seem at first glance kind of diametrically opposed, but Um, I was working myself in politics when I started writing book one, Fool Me Once. So um, I was working at a politically minded think tank here in Houston uh, that was working on Texas state policy um, and policy at like the national level, just really, really ambitious. And so I was seeing all the behind the scenes, like how the sausage gets made, which was a <laughs> lot of just like controversies and, and politicians act and their teens acting foolishly. And there were so many times where I was like, wow, no one would even believe me if I wrote this in a story. And part of keeping my sanity was like trying to find the humor in it. Uh-huh. um and eventually i was like you know what maybe i should write this in a story like maybe i should write about a woman who's trying to get things done in the in a really hard obstacle ridden um field like politics and that's how lee stone came about because lee the alexis's older sister and this is in book 1 um, is a woman who's very take charge, very good at her job, just absolutely terrible at her love life and her social life. Um, you know, she's a party girl who manages to like keep her straight face for business, but um, and so I just had so much fun infusing this romance, this second chance romance, which is what book one is. Um, Lee is is. Forced to work with Ben, who was her ex, whose life she exploded five years ago. Um, and and so it was like that book was rife with themes of like redemption and second chances, and it's possible to do really hard and seemingly um impossible things, and you know, and and so it's just like this really hopeful. Book. I poured all of my like political fantasies <laughs> <and> <laughs> into that version of Texas that I was creating back in 2020 when I was writing it. Um, and so my editor at Harper Collins, Kat Klein, loved that. And she also loved the fact that, you know, Lee was really knowledgeable about politics, and you get lots of pieces of politics, you know, in with your love story. And so for book two, she said, okay, you know, this we'd agreed it would be Alexis's story. And she's like, I need it to be set in the political world as well, mm. which was a challenge for me because Alexis wants nothing to do with politics. You yeah, know, like yeah. her sister, she's just a complete diametrically opposed. Uh, she makes a joke about her eyes glazing over when Lee talks about politics. Um, so I had to figure out how I was going to do that. And it was a delight to come up with this um fake dating plot in which she, <laughs> and you know, I'm, this like, yeah, a one night stand scandal forces her now to like participate in a political campaign.
0: Now the the fake dating trope is um, pretty, a pretty common romantic comedy yeah. um, plot point. How did you, how do you make it original?
1: Yeah, that's a great question though. I will say the it's so interesting to me as both a thriller writer and a romance writer not to there's such a premium put on originality in the thriller world you know like the twist no one can see coming and like a premise that no one can believe um and there's not so much that same premium in the
0: romance world no because readers Um, want they want the story to play out a certain way yes there's it's and it's it's its own thing it's its own
1: world and its own set of demands which i love and which is so cool so it's less like the the demands are less in romance that you have to provide something like that feels wholly original obviously that's always great and readers will like that if you also do it well yeah um but you can have a very beloved book in the romance world that takes a lot of very familiar (laughs) things and just puts it together in a way that satisfies readers. Like they're, they're really feeling connected to your characters. There's just like, like a really deeper character emphasis um, there. So all of that being said, because I am who I am with this like very type A brain that I've been saddled with. And like, again, perfection and performance anxiety, you know, always trying to get an A plus no matter what. Um, even as a woman in my thirties, I I—I did tell myself that I wanted to do something, try to make fake dating fresh. And so for me, I was like, okay, what that means to me is it's going to be really high stakes and really, you know, the, like, if Alexis and, um, and Logan, who is her love interest and, and the gubernatorial candidate, if they mess up or act unprofessionally or reveal that they're not actually dating, like, uh, it will have major repercussions, not only for his campaign, but the fe- political future of Texas. Um, so that's pretty high stakes doing that. And also, um, having it be like Alexis choosing this fake dating, not to like win back a previous suitor or anything. To her, it's a like a new adventure, an empowering um, kind of zany thing. She's asking the universe to like expand her horizons, and it's put Logan Arthur <laughs> in her lap and this opportunity. So it's a lot about like kind of um, Alexis's development as a person and kind of growing outside of her shell and she leans more and more into this fake relationship and it of course every dimension of it this this is part of the trope but like every dimension of it becomes real not just her relationship with Logan but her kind of owning the political platform she chooses and becoming an advocate for herself and her colleagues who you know educators So yeah, that that was how I I tried to kind of like make it fresh. Well,
0: you know, there's they say there's only a certain number of plots in the world, and (laughs) that all books are the same plot. I was actually at um, Zilker Park last Sunday evening, which is right by Barton or Barton Springs is in Zilker Park, and uh, watching a Shakespeare in the Park uh, presentation. And they, they were doing a summarized version of four different comedies. And, um, and I mentioned to the ladies that I was with that all of Shakespeare's comedies basically have the same plot. You know, they're yeah. all, there's almost, and some of the tragedies too, but they always have, they often have a storm. Um, Twelfth Night was one of them and it starts with a storm. So they yeah. often have a storm. They always have mistaken identities. They often have um, people pretending to be the opposite gender, almost they always. Yep. They almost always have a, a duke or a prince or something that's, and they always have a jester, you know, a joker, a jester character. So they're very similar, and yet Shakespeare's plays have have lasted the test of time. Over and over and over again, not because they're original, because there really isn't a whole lot of originality in that, but because mm-hmm. of the way it is executed, and mainly because of the language in that in this in that case. Mm-hmm. So, when you're writing um, kind of genre fiction, it's maybe sometimes a little harder to have that originality of of language. So, how did you deal with mm-hmm.
1: that? Yeah, that's so interesting. I So in an attempt to kind of like get to originality of language and originality of like um, the way that I'm expressing thoughts um, is before I start any book project, I will go back and reread poetry, my favorite poets. Um, Because doing that, like Richard Sykin, um, his volume Crush, Terrence Hayes, American Sonnets for my past and future assassins, like those are my two favorites. Um, But Night Sky with um, Exit Wounds by Ocean Vyong is also like one that I absolutely love and return to. Um, And doing that is like this reset for my brain. That reminds me that it's possible to do really extraordinary things with language, really fresh things, um, because those poets are so incredibly inventive with the way they use words to describe like the emotional acuity of the way they use language is so high and so fierce. And so I read poem poets, poetry to kind of like reset my brain and, um, inspire myself to try to kind of reach outside, you know, some of the familiar expressions and cliches, even that if you read a lot in the same genre, kind of clutter your head, you know, if five out of eight books that you've read in this genre have used kind of like, you know, the breath I didn't know I was holding or whatever. (laughs) You're like, it's just going to happen. You're going to be in writing a scene and you're going to want to say, yeah, release the breath I didn't even know I was holding. And so you have to, like, constantly be aware of that um, tendency and be really scrupulous with the way you're using language. At least that's my approach. Um, So not only am I trying to, like, till the ground, make it ready for me to start drafting, but, of course, in the editing process, I try to be really Merciless with myself and the way I've expressed things, and if anything feels like like I've seen it before too much in the way I've expressed it, um, then I'll cut it and try, or you know, try to (laughs) try to revise. So because that that part prose is really important to me. Um,
0: Now, do you write start to finish quickly and then go back and and rework?
1: You know, I. My process is I do very deep character work, first and foremost, with using Story Genius by Lisa Kron. I'm addicted to that book. Um, I've written all my books using that as prep. Um, So I, I figure out the ins and outs on every emotional and psychological level I possibly can of my main characters using that guideline. And then I develop a plot out of, you know, the their past memories, the things they are most terrified of in this world, the things they want most of in this world. So I'm kind of using all of that to like figure out my plot. Usually like story genius, it sounds counterintuitive, but doing all the deep character work makes plotting so easy because it's like your plot just flows organically from your character and all the things they're like resisting and asking for. So I will plot and then I draft. So it's like this multi-stage process. And I'm an edit as you go kind of girl. Um, I edit as I draft. And then of course, I like edit again, send it (laughs) off to the editor, multiple rounds of edit. So there's no end to the editing, but luckily... I prefer editing to drafting like oh. a million times over, so okay okay yeah, I'd so much <laughs> rather be editing than drafting
0: <laughs> so I mean, you've published four books since nineteen twenty twenty one so how you must be very fast, or did, were some of these written long before then? um no,
1: I have written them all since in my dreams came out um so I suppose. And to be fair, I wrote In My Dreams in 2019. Okay. Um, and then it was published in 2021. So there was a l there was a lag there. And so um I wrote both I wrote Fool Me Once while I was waiting for Dreams to come out. So it's like 2019 was Dreams, 2020 was Fool Me Once, 2021 was um The Last Housewife. And so, but now I'm starting to ramp up um, and wrote two books in 2022 um, and we'll be doing the same for 2023. So it's my current project.
0: How do you, I mean, that seems pretty ambitious to write two books in a year. It, like two years yes. in a row. <laughs>
1: um, and not just two years in a row, but for the foreseeable future. Um I say this mostly because I'm still wrapping my head around it. So yeah. I keep like saying it to myself and I'm like, can't be true what did you do (laughs) past Ashley to get us into this um but yeah I I had a really ambitious year where you know I signed uh, a two-book contract with my thriller publisher and then went and turned around and signed a two-book contract for romances with my romance publisher and then just keep renewing those two-book contracts so Um,
0: you have different publishers for each I do Okay. I do, yes,
1: and <laughs> so, it's fun, I highly recommend it,
0: really <laughs> why, what is it? What yeah. makes it fun? What makes it fun? Well, it's fun because when
1: you're a new writer, when you're a debut writer, um you know absolutely nothing about the industry, about the publication process, like, yeah, you can pick up books that will purport to tell you what to expect, um I think after the deal. Is the title of one that I found particularly helpful. But honestly, you know nothing, and so you are just going on this roller coaster ride without, with like very little support um, in this in publishing your debut book. And all you know about the way things work is how what your experience was with your first publisher. You know, and however they do things is how you think the industry standard is. Or, And you start to learn over time that that's not actually true. Everyone does it a different way. Even people at your own publisher are having different experiences. And so it really broadened my perspective to publish with another publisher to see how they did it. And kind of like compare apples to apples. And yeah, I think I highly recommend that to other writers. It's just like very enlightening, illuminating.
0: I bet. I bet. Yeah, you're listening to writers' voices, and our guest today is Ashley Winstead, author of The Boyfriend Candidate. Ashley, would you like to read a little bit from the book for us? I would love
1: that. Um, I'm going to read to you from chapter one. So we're just going to start at the at the beginning. Awesome. Okay. So chapter one. Alexis Stone is not a mouse. (laughs) I'll say one nice thing about my ex, Chris Tuttle. The man was the entire reason I was here, standing at the entrance to the sultry Florida Lee hotel bar, wearing a red dress so plunging I kept it in the back of my closet for fear of scandalizing visitors, on the verge of reinventing myself. The memory of Chris and the still fresh psychic wounds he'd left me were like a marching drumline urging me forward as I'd left my apartment, Ubered downtown to the Flor de lis and cut a determined path across the lobby to the bar, a place with a reputation as Austin's grand central station of hookups. Unfortunately, now that I was standing at the entrance, the sight of all the laughing, drinking, dazzling people, dressed to the nines like me but looking much more at ease about it, had me momentarily cowed. I thought back to what Chris had said the day I discovered he was cheating on me, for the second time. I do have needs you can't satisfy. You should really learn to be more adventurous in bed, Lex. you are like a timid little mouse. It can get really boring. Remembering those words, I straightened my shoulders, took a deep breath, and stepped inside. I was not a boring mouse. Or at least I wouldn't be one anymore. Starting tonight, I was going to be a new version of Alexis Stone, as bold and adventurous as my flaming red dress. I, I tried to soak in the beauty of the bar while beelining through the crowded tables, anxious to leave the peculiar spotlight of being the only person standing a bunch of co- a, among a bunch of cozy, seated people. But then I realized, knew Alexis wouldn't care if everyone's eyes flitted to her as she walked across a room. In fact, knew Alexis would welcome it, because she'd spent nearly an hour straightening and then re-curling her hair into movie star ringlets, and maybe that effort should be appreciated. (laughs) I forced myself to slow and look up at the bar's gorgeous glass ceiling, shaded a twinkly blue thanks to the night sky. Real palm trees lined the circular perimeter, fronds reaching toward the stars. They made the bar look like a very urbane urban jungle which actually wasn't too far off the mark. My older sister Lee and her friends liked to roll their eyes at the entire downtown bar scene, calling places like the fleur-de-lis, quote, meat markets where you can go to spend 35 bucks on a martini while beating back horny yuppies, end quote, Lee's words. They preferred the hipster bars on the east side of Austin, where the clientele was cooler yet dirtier, my words. I thought the Florida Lee was romantic, so it made sense to come here tonight for my critical, but 100% private mission. I, Alexis Rosalie Stone, was going to have my first one-night stand. I was going to sleep with a man with no strings attached, no stakes or expectations, just one night to do whatever felt right. Alexis, the unadventurous boar? I'd killed her and buried the body. The gleaming brass bar was crowded, but I managed to slip a shoulder between two men and catch the bartender's attention. Vodka martini, I said, feeling a sudden rebellious compulsion to do anything that would raise my sister's eyebrows. By the time my drink came, I'd completed a full 360 swivel in my barstool to survey the sea of men for potential candidates. How exactly did one negotiate a one-night stand? Did you lead with it in conversation so all your cards were on the table? Hi, I'm Alexis. You might be interested to know I'm trolling for a stranger to ravish me. Or did you hold back, let your intention slip out at just the right moment? Oh, I see you're ordering an Uber home. Could I interest you in going splitsies back to my place for a wild night of sex? (laughs) I braced a hand on the bar, taking a fortifying sip of my martini. Even if I made a complete fool of myself tonight. Even if I was roundly rejected by every man I spoke to. Coming here alone at least meant Leon crew couldn't witness my flop. Then use it to skewer me for all eternity like the Jekylls they were. A whistle cut through the bar's ambient noise, followed by a loud, Now that's a dress. Out of nowhere, a man appeared and sidled up beside me. One look at him and my mind blurted, Forehead, probably because his <laughs> was shiny as a disco ball, framed by waggling eyebrows, and tilted all the way to the side. The next second, I realized his head was turned that way so he could get a clear view down my dress. Thanks. I placed a protective hand over my chest and swiveled in the opposite direction. Hoping my body language would signal my disinterest, I took another sip of my martini and studied the empty corner of the room like it was fascinating. No such luck. I'm Carter Randall, the man said, jutting out his hand. What's your name? My deep desire for him to go away warred with my silly, lifelong compulsion to be nice. Um, I twisted back to shake his oddly moist hand and search for inspiration. My gaze snagged, as his clearly had, on my dress. Ruby! The next word came unbidden. Dangerfield. Ruby Dangerfield. Ugh, curse my polite hardwiring that had me sitting here inventing a new name instead of dismissing him with something cool and clipped like, not interested. Carter gave my hand a little squeeze. He was twice my age, probably well into his fifties. Well-dressed with a massive gold watch on his wrist, and now that I squinted, a strangely sweaty face like he'd just done a lap. Was he on party drugs? He used his sleeve to mop his forehead, and I pulled my hand away, resisting the urge to wipe it on my dress. Carter's eyes drifted down the length of my body yet again. Well, Miss Ruby, can I buy you a drink? A stiff one? He grinned. Oh, I said. That's very nice, but, um, no thank you. Inside, I burned with the fire of a thousand suns. Saying no to anyone, even a stranger, stretched the limits of my bravery. Aw, come on. Carter leaned in closer and I scooted back so fast I nearly tipped over. Look at you, sitting there in that dress, clearly fishing for attention. Well, you caught me. Let's get you drunk and see what happens. Apparently, I was going to get a lesson (laughs) in in how not to proposition someone tonight. But my cheeks were burning because in a small way, Carter was right. I had come here to put myself on display and find someone, just very much not him. Be the new Alexis, I urged myself. Stop prioritizing this stranger's feelings and tell him to leave you alone. But I couldn't. At the slightest provocation, old, sad, doormat Alexis had quickly jumped back in charge. I'm not trying to be rude, I said carefully, feeling my heartbeat spike. I would just like to be by myself tonight. I'll shoot. Now that I'd committed to that, would I have to leave the bar so Carter didn't catch me talking to anyone else? My palms started sweating. One drink, he started. Oh, for f***'s sake, came a voice, tinged with an accent I couldn't place. British mixed with Texas panhandle? I nearly knocked over my martini. She said, no, mate, get it through your thick skull and leave the poor woman alone.
0: Thank you. (laughs) And thus we meet Logan Arthur. (laughs) Thus we meet Logan. I wanted to get to the Logan of it all. (laughs) And that was Ashley Winstead reading from The Boyfriend Candidate. So one of the um, things you've mentioned a couple of times, I just want to get into a little bit, is and it because it's an important aspect of Alexis' character, and that is perfectionism. You use the term toxic perfectionism. So, is this something that you have a strong interest in overcoming yourself? <laughs> oh, yes,
1: something you over identify with yourself. Yes, absolutely. No, I am um, the oldest of a family of four. Just a very type A, very, it's like every cliche about perform, people who, you know, based all their worth on performing it applies to me. And so this is something that I really try to explore through, um, probably most of my books. Um, though the boyfriend candidate and my debut in my dreams, I hold a knife would probably be the most explicit examples of this. Um, but yeah it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to this feeling like you have to earn good things, including people's love and intention and affection. Um, and if you, God forbid, don't measure up um, to other people's expectations or even your understanding of other <laughs> people's expectations, you know, that you're not going to there's not going to be a place for you in this world or in relationships or in families or, um, and it's this exhausting thing that I think a lot of us as adults are unlearning. Um, so
0: that's, yeah. yeah. Keep returning and, to it. And it's like, what is it? How did our parents do this to us? I'm not, <laughs> and I'm, um, you know, most of the, you know, About half the shows or more, my mom is my co-host and we have a great relationship and people, people know that. And, and I'm not saying that, that she did that, but my dad did. My dad's expectations, he had this, this held up these expectations of us that it's like was impossible to ever live up to. Now here's, my dad died in 1981. So he's been gone. He died very young and he's been gone a really long time and so he didn't have it didn't have a chance to to um make up maybe for for some of that but there's this something really funny happened recently with my mom found all of my dad's old report cards oh and showed them to my sister and i now um we're two of we're the only two girls there's five we have three brothers but showed them to my sister and I and we both had the same reaction which was he didn't get straight A's (laughs) he got decent grades but there were a lot of B's and even a few C's and some remarks about conduct and it's like we had this image of my dad as being the perfect student. Yeah. And he wasn't. Is
1: it because he expected that of you
0: yes. to be the perfect
1: student? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so he was putting on you what he Didn't necessarily live up to him himself. And I have a
0: feeling that his parents may have had that expectation of him. And he was very, very smart. He was very smart. But um, my my grandmother, my father's mother, um, was kind of a difficult person to please. And I I feel like my dad was always trying to please her his whole life and never really did. And, you know, go back another generation, she lost her mother at a very early age, like three, four years old, and was raised by a housekeeper and then later had a stepmom who I don't think she got along with. And so she didn't really learn how to be a mother. You know, she didn't have that mothering in her life and so she, it was hard for her to pass that on with her own children, I think. So. Isn't this fascinating? Yeah. The, and then, the and then here the my sister and I are both with this high expectations of ourselves, perfectionism and not ever feeling like we could quite do enough.
1: Right, because yeah. there is no enough. There is you know, no it's <laughs> there. There's no. There's no success or achievement that is ever going to release you from that feeling. Yeah, um, which is a thing you also learn as an adult. <laughs> if, you know, if you're like in therapy and and working on it. Um, but yeah, God, that that intergenerational trauma that you know. I always try to give people the best of, you know, the, the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and think like most people are probably out there just doing the best they can. Yes. The yeah, best, yeah. to best, um, of their ability to what they know. Um, and that still is kind of like the reason why we just tend to give to our loved ones, what we've received. And,
0: yeah.
1: um, And your character,
0: Alexis Stone, is carrying a burden based on her father, what she thought her father who has passed away's expectations were. And so this is, you'll have to read the book to find out what I'm talking about. But um, she comes to find out that maybe her interpretation of her father's thoughts and expectations was not correct.
1: Yeah, and it yeah. changes her life. Yeah. So yeah. that was very very cathartic, yeah.
0: right? Oh. <laughs> so I'm wondering, you know, you've set these romantic comedies in um in the world of politics. Are your thrillers set in the world of politics also? Because you certainly could be.
1: Yeah, no, there's
0: yeah, politics has
1: um room for for thriller plots, that's for sure. Yeah. No, I actually, um, tend to set them within college, the world of college campuses, or ah. at least, um, in my dreams and The Last Housewife are both college campus adjacent. Um, one takes place on a college campus during a homecoming reunion weekend, and the second, Last Housewife, goes back to an old, old college campus to kind of like retrace the past and, um, so, yeah, I tend to I, – I have patterns of my own in my writing. <laughs> uh, but Midnight is the Darkest Hour, which is my thriller coming out this fall, is the first book that um, – uh, the first thriller of mine that doesn't take place in a college campus.
0: And so where and is it set?
1: It is set in a rural, coastal Louisiana town, like a tiny – yeah, pretty pretty <laughs> a Tiny coastal Louisiana town, a fictional town, but – um, kind of, um, I imagine, close-ish to Huma, um, Louisiana. So, and did that, you did you do my,
0: some research trips there?
1: I did. Yes, yeah. I had family living in New Orleans, um, in South Louisiana, so I was able to kind of use that as a home base <laughs> and, and do research there. So I love love the like in person writerly research, but I also realized that this was a thought I had recently that actually. My each of my main characters' relationships to college says everything important you need to know about them. Um so apparently even (laughs) if a book isn't set in college, like I'm I'm (laughs) drawn to that.
0: Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um your bio says you're you were an academic, a PhD in American literature. Were you teaching in were you a professor.
1: So I was teaching during my PhD program, but after I um, defended my dissertation and graduated with my degree, that's when I took about a two-month break, which felt so luxurious at the time. <laughs> um, but now, when I look back, I'm like, I probably could have used a little bit longer, and then jumped into alt and altac path, which was the think tank. Mm. Um, as much as I loved teaching and loved my students really was what it was just I realized that it wasn't for me like it wasn't what I wanted to do I, I went into my PhD program because I loved writing and research so much and then you know kind of learned like oh yeah the other really important part of this job is teaching and I was doing that part really reluctantly Ah, um, because for me I am an introvert and teaching felt like a perform- a 50-minute performance in it's front ex- of an audience. Exhausting. Exhausting. It was yes. very draining for me. Yeah. I looked at my, my fellow members of my cohort and saw they were not having that same experience. And it was invigorating or at least, you know, not draining to them and realized like, okay, this probably isn't for you. And that's okay. You can yeah. let go of this dream and, um, and create a different one. That, so yeah.
0: Yeah. So now writing fiction was that always part of the dream?
1: It was um it was the first and only thing I wanted to do my entire life growing up. <laughs> um, I have very vivid memories of being like 7 or 8 years old getting a creative writing homework assignment um to, you know, write a paragraph or two, mm-hmm. something silly about a ship on on the waves, like sailing on the sea. Um, and boy, the way I treated that so seriously, you would have thought like my life depended on it, but I was just, it was because I'd become so enamored with language. I remember like my hands behind my back kind of pacing in my bedroom, trying out different sentences and realizing that certain sen- sentences, using certain words, I could make, have the rhythm of waves, you know, up and down and, um, the crash of, of waves hitting the hull. I was just so amazed by what language could do. So when I found out that I could actually do that for a job, um, I very much wanted to. That was the dream until about 22 when I was graduating from my undergrad degree with my creative writing, um, you know, BA under my belt. Everything had been going smooth on this writing path for 22 years. And the next step was getting into MFA programs. So I thought, you know, I Mm -hmm. was using academic writers, all my professors, as models of what what it looks like, what a writing career looks like. And they all had MFAs and were teaching at the university. So I thought that's what one did. Um, And I applied to a dozen MFA programs and got roundly rejected from all 12 of them. Oh. Um, My heart broke. And I think more importantly than that, my sense of identity broke because writer was who I was. Um, It was like what defined me. And all of a sudden I was hearing for the first time in a really major way, um, no, we don't want you. You are not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. So um, (laughs) I did it right for 10 years
0: after that. Oh, wow. What was wrong with all of them? I mean, obviously you've proved them wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's, you know, it's so funny because um, I just look back with so much regret at myself for doing the thing that writers are never supposed to do, which is take no for an answer, you know, which is like internalize the no. That was just 12 of my first Rejections out of hundreds and thousands, you know? Um, that, and so what I should have done is like licked my wounds, done something for a year, worked on my writing and my craft and my application and applied again if that was something I wanted to do. Like that's what you do just like nowadays if a publisher rejects my book, I lick my wounds. Ask other publishers if they want to um, you know, purchase my book. And then if no one does, I write a new one, you know, and try yet again. It's that like Do you have un- any th- of those books in the yeah. drawer? I so I have one book in the drawer, and I will never see the light of day. <laughs> I think because <laughs> I've been convinced that it it actually isn't that good. Oh. Um and but
0: do yeah. you really believe that?
1: I mean, I'm attached to it emotionally, of course, because I loved those characters and I learned from those characters, but I have no regrets because that was the book. That was my first book. That was your practice book. It was my practice book. Yeah. Yeah. So what what brought you back to writing again? I wrote a dissertation for my PhD program, which was basically 360 pages, full book length, of a very dry academic subject, you know, so I, I, in the process of needing to produce a book in a year, essentially, um, I learned a really great work ethic. I would wake up at eight o'clock in the morning, which for me is early being a night owl and work until like 10 PM with little breaks for meals and using that like every single day, seven days a week. And using that work ethic, I was able to produce this dissertation, defended it, graduated. And on the other side of it, I started to think to myself, okay, remember that old dream you had uh. of writing <laughs> fiction? What if you paired this new work ethic with oh, writing wow. things you actually really care about and are a joy to write about instead of like very tedious academic research? I mean, I love I loved being an academic, but like, woof." like 25 books you have to write, read to like, write one sentence. It's just very intense. And so there's so much freedom in, in being a fiction writer. So I, and then that even that wasn't enough, like your new work ethic and this old dream, I had to tell myself that no one would ever read what I was going to (laughs) write. So I was so terrified of being rejected again. I told myself that it was simply going to be my fun activity. Instead of watching Netflix at night, I was going to write my own little stories, you know, and that is how it felt for that first year of sneaking time away in weekends. And after, you know, I got a day job and, and had to be working, it really felt like a treat every time I got to sit down at my laptop and write my, my book felt like, oh, my God, I've been waiting
0: all day to do this. And now that so, it's your full-time job, is it still a treat? Um, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to stop there because we're out of yeah. time. <laughs> okay. But, right. Ashley, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. We always end with the quote, and I found one um, on the topic that we discussed, perfectionism, from Julia Cameron, who, um, of course, knows a thing or two about writing perfectionism is not a quest for the best. It is a pursuit of the worst in ourselves. The part that tells us that nothing we do will ever be good enough that we should try again.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's hitting a little too close to home. I love it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Monica. I really appreciate
0: it. It's been a joy. <laughs> for me too. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.